Well, our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. So it's Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. This is found on page 867 in your pew Bible. So um, in those uh, racks in front of you, those pew Bibles, you can turn there and follow along. And if you're newer with us um, and you don't have a Bible of your own, um, please take one of those home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of the scriptures of your own. So this is uh, Jesus's words in Luke chapter 9. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I have to start this morning by first thanking all of you for the incredibly kind birthday wishes. As uh, Pastor Henry announced so kindly two Sundays ago, January 6th was my 30th birthday. Now, a number of you, like a lot of you, uh, expressed some degree of surprise that I was turning uh, but 30. And I, I wonder, should I be insulted because I have aged more quickly than that, or should I be uh, grateful that I present as someone more mature than my ears? I mean, I really think that could cut either way. So I'm still wrestling deeply with that. But I am glad that Henry announced my birthday because now you know, and I'm sure you've put it in your phones to give me a gift next year. No, no, no. I'm actually glad because it makes a perfect segue into what I want to share with you this morning, which is a story from another birthday of mine, not from when I was 30 or 29, but from when I was but 12 years old. And yes, I brought pictures. Because you see, my mom is a wonderful cataloger of our uh, pictures from when I was a kid. She's got them in all of these uh, beautiful little photo albums, and she's got them broken down by date. So I knew she would be able to target right in on my 12th birthday, and I asked her to send me any and all pictures she could have from that. She, there's not many. She claims my dad was supposed to work the camera that year. Uh, but she found some. She sent them along. And she also found, this isn't my birthday, this is just another gem that she found. Uh, yeah, you weren't ready for the rec specs this morning, were you? I mean, that's me in the middle right there. I, I uh, texted my friend Matt, who's the guy on the right, and I said, dude, even when we were 11, you were really cool, man. But but not me, not, not so much. Okay, get that picture off, get that picture off. Now there's a key bit, a key bit about me that you need to know before I throw up this 12-year-old birthday picture. You, you can't look at this picture without knowing this bit about me. At the core of my nature, very, very deep down, I am a deeply selfish and self-centered person. I am, I am. Maybe you've experienced that side of me. If so, I apologize. Maybe you haven't, but it's there, I promise you. At my core, I am deeply selfish, deeply self-centered. And it's something that I'm working on, I'm hopefully growing in, I'm, I'm navigating through it, hopefully, prayerfully, I'm improving. But it's a battle that I, I somehow often lose with myself. Two steps forward and, and one step back. And I don't think, I don't think there's any picture in my life that proves this point better than this one right here. 
So the glasses are slightly better than the rec specs, but don't miss the icing on the cake. It says, it's all about Paul. <laughs> That's right, folks. For my 12th birthday party, it was Paul-themed down to the icing on the cake. Are you doubting? Are you doubting my self-centered nature now, right? I mean, sure, I made my friends eat a cake that says it's all about Paul, but we also played Paul-themed trivia. So any of you students out there looking for your next birthday party idea, I'm available. <laughs> uh, it's all about Paul has basically been my life motto to this point. I'm ashamed to say, but here's what I'm slow, so slowly realizing, ever so slowly. My Monday is only life-giving when it's not about me. My Monday is only life-giving when it's not about me. And I actually believe that's true for you this morning. Your Monday will only ever be life-giving if it somehow becomes not about you. Now, if you're joining us for the first time in 2019, you, you might be understandably confused. What, what does Monday have to do with all of this? I hate Mondays. You might be thinking that. And if you are, a lot of times, I'm, I'm right there with you. Mondays can be the worst, can't they? They can be. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if Mondays didn't have to be the worst? What if Mondays were no longer something that we dread, but something that we anticipate? What if Mondays were to our advantage? Now, by Monday, we mean all of life. All of life. That's important. That's what is at the core of this metaphor, so, so don't miss it. We're going to be saying that over and over and over again during this sermon series that we launched a couple of Sundays ago, Church for Monday. Church for Monday. Monday is all of life. It's the home you live in. It's the people you love. It's the hobbies you have. It's where you work. It's where you go to school. Monday is the cause that captures your heart. It's the bully on the bus. It's the belligerent boss. Monday, praise be to God, is the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. Can I get an amen? Right? A lot of red out there today. Hopefully Monday will also be the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Come on, right? Monday is all of life, which means Monday is that too. And here's what we believe at our core at Christ Community. If you're new, if you're just with us for the first time or the second time, here's what we believe. We believe that God cares about all of it. All of it. There is not one inch of your life that God does not care desperately about. That he's not extremely interested in. But far too often churches and pastors, maybe even especially pastors, have been guilty of being obsessed with our Sundays to the exclusion of your Mondays. And it ought not be that way. Yes, Sundays are vitally important. Something unique happens when God's people gather with one another on this day to bear one another's burdens, to read his word together, to pray with one another, to worship with one another. There's something vital about Sunday. But if our Sundays don't help your Monday, then what is the point? And so that's why we're starting out 2019 with eight sermons on this topic, eight weeks about what it takes to get ready for Monday. Because that's the question, isn't it? If God cares so very deeply about Monday, if it matters just as much as Sunday, then how do we get ready for it? How do we get ready for Monday? 
Well, here's what we've come up with. This list is not exhaustive. There's certainly more that we could say here, but we believe that these are the seven marks of someone who is ready for Monday. These are signs or indicators that someone is faithfully following Jesus and that they might, that they might just be ready for all that life is going to throw at them when the alarm blares on Sunday morning. We believe that he or she will take up their cross, they will put on their yoke, they will build their life on the Bible. We believe that they love the church and that they seek the good of the city by giving themselves away, by sharing the gospel in word and deed, and by working diligently for the flourishing of all. And each of our remaining weeks in this teaching series will focus upon one of these marks, grounding it in a particular section of scripture that describes that mark. And this morning we're diving in on the first mark, takes up their cross, at the fact that someone who is ready for Monday lifts up their cross every day and willingly accepts the high cost of following Jesus. You heard Pastor Bill read our passage of scripture to you a moment ago, Luke 9, verses 23 through 26. If you haven't already turned there in your Bible or located that on your phone, please do so so you can follow along with us as we journey through it. And while you flip there or turn there or scroll there, allow me to set the scene for us. Just prior to the interaction that we witness in these verses, Luke 9, 23 through 26, Jesus has just performed one of his most incredible miracles. It is the only miracle that finds itself in all four Gospels, because John's a little bit different in a beautiful sort of way. But the feeding of the 5,000, which was 5,000 men, which means that it was probably 20,000 people, is I think one of Jesus' all-timers, right? He takes five loaves and two fish, and he multiplies it to feed all 20,000 people, and so that there was 12 baskets left over. And immediately following this incredible, stunning display of power and control over the elements, Peter, one of Jesus' original 12 followers, he correctly confesses that Jesus is the much-awaited Savior and Deliverer that the Jewish people have been waiting on, have been anticipating for centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years. Now imagine, imagine with me this morning being one of those 12 followers of Jesus. Maybe you're not Peter, but you're one of the other 11. You have left everything behind and cast your lot in with this Jesus, with the Hail Mary hope that he might be the Savior that you have heard about since you were a little baby boy or a baby girl. Because the stories of the Savior that was to come, these were the Jewish bedtime Bible stories. You've heard about this Savior for literally your entire life, and there have been false ones before. But what if Jesus isn't false? What if he's the real deal? You believe that he is. So you've cast your lot in with him, and then he confirms it. He says, yes, Peter, you're right. You're right. In fact, you're so right that you couldn't come up with that on your own, but, but God sent that message through you. I am the Savior. Where is your mind at that moment? Right? Because you cast your lot in with him early. This guy is going to be king. What riches might be waiting for you? What glory might be yours when he's crowned king? And then Jesus slaps Luke 9, 
verses 21 and 22, onto his followers. This is what he says. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Why? Saying, the Son of Man, that's him, that's Jesus, must suffer. You're like, wait a second. Did I hear you right? Suffer? Hold on. What? Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed? Wait, what? And be killed and then again on the third day raised. Now this would have been the ultimate conversational whiplash. Because if you're one of Jesus' original followers, then your conception of who the Savior will be is not this. It's not Luke 9, verses 21 and 22. It is so far from it. Your Savior is a conqueror. Your Savior is someone with power. Power to turn five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 20,000 people. But then your Savior is someone who takes that power and bottles it up and leads a revolution to overthrow your Roman overlords. That's your Savior. But instead of that, instead of drafting a battle plan, at the very moment that Jesus confirms that he is the Savior that he hoped he would be, he instead tells you that he is going to suffer much, eventually leading to his murder. And it actually gets worse for Jesus' original followers. It gets stranger. Let's take again... A look at the passage that Bill read for us a few minutes ago, starting just with Luke 9, verse 23. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross daily, and let him follow me. This bad day at the office just keeps getting worse for these guys, because Jesus' meaning in this verse would have been rather obvious to them as it as it likely is to us. Building off of what he has already said prior, Jesus essentially says this, the only way to be on my team is to go my way. And I've just told you what my way is, what is going to happen to me. My followers ought to expect the same, even worse, self-denial that leads to rejection, suffering, even death. Again, emotional whiplash. These guys thought they were going to be riding into Rome as conquerors, ushering in a Jewish kingdom with Jesus as their earthly king. But instead, they find out that what awaits them in Jesus' kingdom is a cross of their own. And here's the punchline for us in 2019. 2,000 plus years later, 6,000 miles away, here's the punchline. Not one thing has changed. Despite what you may have heard to the contrary, Luke 9, 23 through 26 is an excellent summary of what it ought to mean to be a Christian. Of what following Jesus actually is about. Which, to, for me, maybe for you too, but for me, that begs an important question this morning. Why would anyone do it? Why would anyone choose to follow Jesus? I think Jesus would have gotten an F in his marketing class. Right? It's not like he markets it well. Self-denial, cross, rejection, death. Wow, what an offer, Jesus. Where do I sign? So this brings us back to our big idea for this morning. Your Monday is only life-giving when it's not about you. 
Because you see, if you look closely at these verses, keep reading 24, 25, 26. If you look closely at these verses, the reasons why one might choose to follow Jesus reveal themselves. The promises, the beautiful promises of this text pop through. Jesus gives three commands in these verses. Commands that when we follow them lead to life. And not just future life, not just one day in the future life, but now life, Monday life. Here they are. Number one, deny yourself control. Deny yourself control. Number two, embrace your Christ centered suffering. Embrace your Christ centered suffering. And number three, follow Jesus wherever he goes. Follow Jesus wherever he goes. And all three of these commands find their grounding in Luke 9.23. And that verse reads again this way. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him, number one, deny himself. Number two, take up his cross daily. And number three, follow me. So we'll track right along with Jesus' order. First command, deny yourself control. Deny yourself control. Because I think that last word is really important. We need that modifier. Because sure, Jesus says, deny yourself, but then we would automatically say, well, deny myself what? What do I have to deny myself? And as we dig deeper into what Jesus meant by self-denial, as we look at other passages on discipleship and following him, and this idea of self-denial, what we find out is that what Jesus is talking about in denial is a denial of control. And in fact, it's a total surrendering of control to him. Jesus-centered self-denial is the process of handing over the car keys of your life to Jesus and getting into the passenger seat, not the driver's seat. Jesus-centered self-denial is not just denying yourself certain things, though it may involve that. And it's not pathological self-denial that ends up being a warped and wicked approach to living an even more self-centered life. And it is certainly not a martyr complex or some version of masochism. No, Jesus-centered self-denial is about a daily recognition that your Monday runs more smoothly when you're not in control of it. Jesus-centered self-denial is about a daily recognition that your Monday works better when you're not in control of it. And that's hard. That's not easy to admit, and it's even more difficult to actually act upon it and deny yourself control on a daily basis. I know it's something I struggle with, but here's what I'm learning, and maybe you're learning it with me. Any control that I think I have is actually an illusion anyway. Any control that I think I have is actually an illusion anyway. Case in point, I was supposed to preach this sermon last Sunday, not today. But what happened? We lost power. And for the first time in six and a half years, we canceled church here at the Brookside campus because it was 50 degrees in this room. And, and not only did we lose power here at church, but like so many of you, I lost power at my own house. But because my tree branch, you ready for it, hit my power line, I was on the hook for those repairs, which means that we did not get power back until Thursday. 
five full days without power or heat in my home. I have never been so ready as I am right now to tell you that yes indeed, control is an illusion. Because sure, I'm in charge of some things, I'm a leader, I'm a dad with kids, and so I suppose sure that I have some sense of control over some things, but all it took was one snowstorm, one power outage, one measly little branch to remind me that the control that I think I have would melt and, and drips through my fingers faster than a tightly packed snowball if I were to put it near a heater. Now, I know that that's not a cheery thought this morning. Hey, the control you think you have is actually kind of an illusion that can fade away very quickly. I know we don't want to dwell on that, but not dwelling on it doesn't make it untrue. And if you don't believe me, well, well maybe you'll believe Lin-Manuel Miranda and the smashing hit musical Hamilton. Is anybody else with me here? Anybody else in on Hamilton? No, seriously? Okay, thank you. Toby Rush, my man, got my back, okay? I have been deep in on Hamilton for just over a year, uh, so it's actually shocking that I'm just sharing about that obsession with you right now. I've preached a lot of sermons between now and then. I love it. I love it. When I dove in, I dove in deep. I listened to the soundtrack in painstaking detail, and I also read, not, this is not an exaggeration, I read literally every single word of the companion book that was written about the musical. This included all of the lyrics in print form, and it had footnotes from Lin-Manuel, which were amazing, and articles about the original cast. And it was while reading this book that a particular line from the musical gripped my heart and has yet to let go. Fourteen months, I've been obsessed with this musical, and this line has not let my heart go. It's, it's George Washington, he's, he's singing it to a young Hamilton. It's during the Revolutionary War, and he wants nothing more, Hamilton, than to command his own troops. And this is what Washington sings to him. I'll refrain from singing it. I was younger than you are now when I was given my first command. I led my men straight into a massacre. I witnessed their death firsthand. That's true for Washington. That wasn't made up for the musical. That really is his story. I made every mistake and felt the shame rise in me. And even now I lie awake knowing history has its eyes on me. Let me tell you what I wish I had known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And beyond this being just really great lyric work, there's a footnote when you get to this line in the book, a footnote, and I, I peer over at it, and this is what Lin-Manuel writes about this lyric, you have no control. He said, these are the truest words that I wrote in the entire musical. This is the hinge, it's the central theme of every, what he built this musical on is this idea that control is actually an illusion. Isn't that fascinating? But you see the answer. Because this poses a problem. Well, what do you mean we have no control? What do we do about that? Do you know how Hamilton answers this confounding question? What they offer up at the end of the musical? It's essentially this. Live the best possible life you can here 
And if you do, maybe, if you do a good enough job, someone else will write your story in a compelling and kind way. Someone else will carry on your legacy, which becomes his wife in the flow of the musical and in Hamilton's life. That's the answer. Just do the best you can, give it the old college try, and if you're good enough, someone else will write your story. And I don't know about you, but I sit here and I'm like, there has to be more than that. That cannot be the answer to this deep and unsettling problem. And thankfully, 1,800 years before real-life Hamilton and and 2,000 years before Lin-Manuel, Jesus says there is a better answer. There is a better way. Jesus says you, you don't really have control anyway. So surrender it to me, give it back to me on Monday and let me drive the car of your life. Deny your self-control and surrender it to me. Command number one, deny your self-control. But that's not all. Jesus continues, command number two, embrace your Christ-centered suffering. This is drawn from Jesus' call to his disciples to take up their cross daily. Now, it's hard for us to conceptualize, since the cross means something rather different to most of us, but we cannot overlook what this command would have meant to Jesus' original audience. This would have been horrifyingly shocking. It would have been deeply offensive, and it would have been utterly terrifying. Because in Jesus' day, crosses were not beautiful gold necklaces that hung from necks. No, no. Crosses were rugged trees that were slapped together so that ashamed and mocked criminals could hang from them to their death. And this, this, the cross, is the metaphor that Jesus described for what it means to be one of his disciples. Why? I think the reason, the core of the reason is that the cross was not just a way to execute someone. It wasn't just a way to kill someone. It was also a way to publicly shame them. It was a way to not just inflict physical pain and anguish, but mental, emotional, and spiritual pain and anguish too. And it's here, it is here that I think we begin to see why we chose the words we did about this mark, right? A person who is ready for Monday takes up their cross, and they what? They willingly accept the high cost of following Jesus. High cost. Yeah, because daily self-denial, that's a high cost. It is. I love my control. I want it right here in my arms. I don't want to surrender it. That is a high cross. But when you marry the high cost of self-denial, when you marry that to the layers of pain that exist in the cross, You're like, yeah, that's a high cost. I now understood what Jesus meant when he said it was important for one to count the cost of following Jesus before we embark upon that journey. I get it. It was a high cost. And really, there's only one word, I think, that captures what Jesus meant in the cross. Suffering. Suffering. There's no other way around it. What we see in Jesus' call to bear our crosses daily is that suffering is baked into the cake of what it means to be one of Jesus' disciples. Now please, please hear me carefully this morning. 
I in no way, I would never, ever, ever want to minimize the myriad of sufferings that exist in this room. I know so many of your stories, and I know how many sufferings exist there within them, and not for one second do I want to minimize those experiences, and neither does Jesus. No. Embracing our suffering does not mean celebrating our suffering. It does not mean cheering about our suffering. It does not mean reveling in our suffering. Not at all. But I do think it's possible to see what Jesus is up to through the cracks in our suffering. And Phyllis, beautiful Phyllis, who regularly attends and belongs to our downtown campus, she displays this truth amazingly. Let's watch. I never saw myself as being disabled or different. I accepted Jesus at 19 years old, and you probably could hear me for three or four blocks. I just started praising God. It was just a, such a feeling in the presence that I had never experienced. And then when they got to talk about healing, how Jesus was a healer, and they would talk about how I could be healed, and I believed it. I walk away very discouraged and nothing no healing no nothing when i got in this wheelchair it was very depressing for me because i really believed that if i had enough faith that i would not that i would walk but that wasn't the case i never questioned god why i had polio I, that in my mind it was never why am i like this i never questioned that but it was like my question used to be, when am I going to walk? That's where I came to. I'm like, Lord, okay, I'm in this wheelchair, and I know that you're a healer. I know it because I believe your word. But even if you don't, it took a long time for me to get there. I'm going to still serve you. I was kind of just through with church. Not God, but church. My daughter actually was on her way to going to another church and she thought Christ Community was that church. <laughs> so accidentally she came to Christ Community and she sat there and it was something about Christ Community that just hit a chord with her and she came home and she said, Mama, you got to come. It's not like any place we've been. You guys became my family. Christ Community became a place of refuge for me. It's a place of healing, still a place of healing for me. Coming to Christ community has uh, really given me a different perspective on God and my ministry and, and what I'm supposed to be doing. And I know part of my purpose is, is to encourage and to pray for people and, and to be there and to be a beacon of light when they don't see it. It's a place not a just, just worship, it's not just on Sunday, but it's every day of the week. I've never been a part of a ministry like that. And I can truly say I've, I feel valued, not just, just as a believer, but as a person. And then as, as a person with a disability, I don't know if it's his will for me to be healed. Only he knows that. I can see one aspect of me being in a chair bringing him glory. And I can say that because 
when people see that I love God regardless of my circumstances, when people see that I still praise him regardless of being in a chair, that gives people encouragement so they can say, no matter where I am, I can still serve God. Crisis is a 24-7, seven days a week God, not just on a Sunday, but Sunday through to the next Sunday. And I see my purpose here, you know, just showing people Christ, even if it's just a smile, people understand the language of love. Isn't that incredible? She gets it. She's a beautiful example and charge to me and charge to us of what it can look like to faithfully embrace our Christ-centered suffering in our journeys with Jesus. Now, now what about that part in parentheses, the, the Christ-centered bit? Why did I include that? Well, it's because there are different types of suffering in this world, aren't there? And really what Jesus is saying here in Luke 9.23 in his call to bear our cross is that we will suffer because we have chosen to join his team. Jesus is saying that there is general, universal suffering that exists because our world is broken. And then there is specific suffering that only Christians experience because they have decided to throw their lot in with him. I mean, just take Phyllis again for example. Her lifelong battle with polio, that is an example of general, universal suffering. It's, it's not the result of her sin or the sin of her parents or something crazy like that, but rather that exists because the reality is that our world is deeply fractured and tragedies like polio exist. But there's another layer of it for Phyllis, isn't there? And you hear her grappling with it in the video. In addition to wrestling with her struggle with polio, she also has to contend with the difficult truth that God has, for whatever reason, in his infinite wisdom, chosen not, chosen not to heal her. Did you hear her grapple with that? I mean, this is part of Phyllis's cross to bear, and my word, does she bear it marvelously well, doesn't she? Christ-centered suffering happens at work. At school, students being teased or ridiculed or singled out for your faith in Jesus Christ. That is Christ-centered suffering. He talks about it in Matthew chapter 7. Christ-centered suffering happens in our home for some of us. It happens in our hearts and our minds and our souls like it does for Phyllis. As she struggles deeply with God not healing her. And wherever we encounter Christ-centered suffering, our call and our command from Jesus is to embrace it just as he did. He is not saying that that is easy, nor does he say that he wants to minimize the pain that comes with your suffering, but he is straightforward and honest and clear about the call to embrace it. And that's command number two. Embrace your Christ-centered suffering. Number one, deny your self-control. Number two, embrace your Christ-centered suffering. And number three, follow Jesus wherever he goes. Or in Jesus' words, the beautiful invitation of this verse, follow me. And really this command, this invitation is an extension of the first two. If you deny your self-control and if you embrace your Christ-centered suffering, then congratulations, you will find that you are following Jesus. But the trick 
The trick is to follow him wherever he goes, no matter what. And that's not so easy, is it? Because he has already made clear that his way is the way of the cross. And so it stands to reason that if you choose to follow him, then he is going to lead you into some difficult places. Will you go with him? Will you go with him? Just a week and a half ago, seriously, it was, it was that recent, our three-year-old son Bevan, he's the, the big one on the right, our three-year-old son Bevan came up to my beautiful wife Ashley, looked at him with longing in her eyes and said to him, seriously, he said, Mom, I will follow you wherever you go. <laughs> yeah, that was her reaction, right? Heart melts, but, but he's three, so you, you know there's a follow-up, right? So he pauses, he thinks about it real deeply, looks back up with her, except for the car wash. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Like, I get it, man. Dude, I'm right there with you. The car wash is terrifying. How often do we do the exact same thing with Jesus? Jesus, it's, it's Paul here. Paul again. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm in. I got it. I know. Follow you. Follow you wherever you go. Just not there. Just not to my checkbook. I'll follow you wherever I go, but not to my checkbook. Not to what I look at on the internet, or even how much time I spend on the internet. I'll follow you, but I will not go to the gym. What's your car wash? What's your car wash? You probably don't have to think about it very long before you know, before you know that area of your life, that location that you're like, I will follow Jesus anywhere, I will not go there. Jesus' call to you today, this morning, is to follow him right there. Right there. Because these commands to follow him, to deny ourselves control, to take up our cross, we're not in a negotiation here, folks. It's all or nothing. All or nothing. And that's difficult. I'm not going to minimize that. It's hard to know that it's all or nothing. But here is what is beautiful about these verses. Jesus does not leave us alone in this consideration. He doesn't stop at verse 23. He keeps going right into Luke 9, 24. And if we look closely enough at all of these verses, like I said, the promises will pop through. Look at verse 924. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. So if you hold on to your life, if you try to control it, you're going to lose it. But here's the promise, folks. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is the promise of these verses. Whoever loses his life, whoever willingly gives it up and surrenders it, by denying himself or her self-control, by taking up their cross and by following him, what's going to happen? You're going to actually understand and find life. The punchline of these verses is that what looks like death, self-denial, the cross, rejection, suffering, what looks like death actually leads to life. Jesus continues in verse 25. He shares that it is possible to gain the whole world. That seems like it would be great, right? To gain the whole world. We've seen quite a few people do that. But that when this happens, all that person has done 
is forfeit their very lives, their soul. And verse 26, because of the challenges of following Jesus, he knows that it will be tempting for us to be ashamed that we've chosen him. He knows that it will be tempting to us to deny our association with him, just like Peter ends up doing. I never knew the man. Stop talking to me. He knows that it will be tempting for us to do that, but he says that all that is waiting for us if we go that way and deny our association with him is that his heavenly father will be ashamed with us on the day of judgment. So Jesus is way forward out of these verses and the reward that we get in doing so becomes crystal clear. Yes, folks, following Jesus on Monday is difficult. Yes, embracing our Christ-centered suffering is a task of enormous proportions. Yes, daily self-denial of control is terrifying. And yes, the world believes that this way of life, that the Jesus way of life is bankrupt. They believe that it is empty, that it is void. They perceive that there is nothing there, but they are oh so wrong. Church, listen to me this morning. It's not Jesus' way that is bankrupt. It is the world's way. The world's way is empty. The world's way is void. The world's way looks like life. It looks so good, but it's going to lead only to death. Friends, don't miss it this morning. Jesus' kingdom, it's upside down. It doesn't make any sense on the face of it to deny the control that I love so much, to, to take up my cross and embrace my suffering, to lose my life. It's upside down, but Jesus' kingdom is the only one that's built to last. Every other kingdom has already fallen or will fall. The only kingdom that has begun and will never end is Jesus' kingdom. And even though his way in his kingdom looks like death and is a difficult road, there is a high cost. Jesus' kingdom is the only one that is never going to fall. And here's how we know all of this is true. Here's how we know that we can take Luke 9.24 to the bank, right? Because there's the cross, but there wasn't just the cross, was there? The reason that we know that we can take Luke 9.24 to the bank is that the tomb is empty, folks. Jesus lives and he reigns again. Once and for all, he proved that even though my way looks like death, it actually leads to resurrection and new life. The empty tomb proves it. The empty tomb proves that when you give up your life for Jesus, you're actually going to find it. And here's the beauty in all of this. Jesus doesn't say, go and die. Jesus doesn't say, go and deny. Jesus doesn't say, go and pick up your cross. Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come and die. Come and pick up your cross. Come and embrace your suffering. Come and follow me. Because friends, Jesus has never gone. He has never told you to go anywhere that he hasn't gone himself. Because he went the way of the cross, didn't he? He bore it on his shoulders until he could no more. And he collapsed from exhaustion. And someone else had to carry it for him. And then his left hand was strung out. And his right hand was strung out. And he was nailed to that cross. Not for his sins, for he had none. But for my sins. For your sins. But that wasn't the end of the story. Praise be to God. Because three days later, he defeated death. He overcame it. And he walked out of that tomb alive. Proving once and for all that if you want to find life on your Monday, you better make it about Jesus, not about you.
Your Monday is only life-giving. It's not about you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that even though your kingdom doesn't make a lot of sense, we know that it's the only one that will last. And we know it's the only one that will last because you're the only king that has ever defeated death. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Father, the call to follow your son Jesus is a difficult one. We know that the cost is high and that it involves denying ourselves control. It involves taking up our cross. It involves following someone who is beautiful and perfect but leads into difficult places. Help us by the power of your spirit to do that and do that well to your honor and glory. It is in the beautiful name which we sung about this morning, the beautiful and powerful name of your son Jesus that we pray. Amen.